for love and design the podcast welcome to for love and design the podcast that explores the world of design innovation art and creativity i'm ross lovegrove and together with ila colombo in this episode we'll be talking about what is design in the 21st century how to adopt a contemporary strategy and be relevant as a creative But before we begin, if you enjoy our podcast, please be sure to subscribe and leave us a review. And don't forget to follow us on social media to stay up to date. Now, let's get started. Hi, Ross. Well, we're here sitting down recording our first episode. And my very first question is around the broader sense of design what is designed to you and what should be designed today well that's a big nebulous question because design now envelops so many different disciplines really it's not it's not you, your mind doesn't singularly go towards one particular thing so in my case i mean throughout my career i've been in a polymathic sense i've been interested in the with profound curiosity of all these different areas of design. So that's why I have a quite a, a diversity in what I do. So design for me, it's something that maybe combines beauty and logic. But like, for example, today we are living in a world where we have integrated connection with algorithmic softwares. Is designing neural networks or designing machine learning as a valuable design as another product? Yeah, but remember who you're talking to, because I've been involved in this for a long time. So it means it's at its inception, it was a, a, a truly analog, very direct profession, the kind of things that you were designing. Whereas today, it's really opened up. I mean, as you rightly say, it's moved into other things. Behavioral sciences, interface, there's all sorts of other ways that one can design today. So it seems a little bit simplistic to, to think that you might go to college and design a stool or something and think that that is really an important contribution, when in fact there's so many other possibilities today, I think, to design. Well, could we agree that there should be a unified focus of design, regardless of its application and regardless of its own outputs? As we just said, there are various those. Should we have a unified focus? I keep thinking about that, but I don't want to be somebody that sits here and is totally prescriptive, because I think by definition, creativity is a force of nature and it's an unbridled, unrestrained outpouring uh, of ideas so to suddenly set up rules that would contain that is is a difficult one if we were talking about ai and the use of these new software programs i think that in its own way that is helping to explore visually new possibilities but the thing is a lot of those things can't be made yet and even if they were made they probably wouldn't display any form of logic so i think the rules that might apply to something that you have to fire into space because of weight and other pressures upon that vehicle or whatever i think that's very different than talking about whether one designs a uh, a new laptop well we can agree that we live in an age where labels and barriers are coming down and creatives are being more fluid within their practice shifting between one subject to another or one product to the next design art industrial design ar and designing in the metaverse from the highly digital to the incredibly crafted objects do you feel like while being more inclusive and diverse we're also losing 
a higher objective and a higher sense of what society needs. At the moment, what I see, if I may elaborate on that, I see a degree of explosive hedonism that's being led by fashion, and it's gone into everything from architecture to uh, to shoes, to everything, you know. And I'm not sure if that is a good service towards the broader idea of humanity and how we coexist, remembering that nature itself provides an incredible amount of information and beauty that we are detached from. We're becoming much more detached from. So I think maybe there is a need for more creative energy expressed because we are becoming more detached from nature. Could this be the fundamental difference between what is art and what is design? Meaning art, by definition, is allowing self-expression and self-exploration without a particular need of function, while design should implicitly potentially have a higher sense of scope? Well, art has that wonderful ability to satiate the human need for exploration, exploration of ideas and communication of ideas. And art has no real laws or there's no judgment associated with it. Although people would say, oh, that's very, that's a wonderful piece of art and that's not. But that's, that's not the point. When you're dealing with making things which take resources, a lot of resources, um, there is a huge responsibility associated with that. So you can't be so flippantly casual about your ideas. It's, that's why there's more discipline maybe in the field of, say, industrial design, which is not a very glamorous term, but it's something which does take materials and it fashions them into something of a higher value. Well, talking of responsibility and discipline, in the 1980s, Dieter Rams set out a few principles which were formed to inform all manner of design types. A few were good design is innovative, good design makes a product useful, good design is aesthetic, good design is honest, good design is long-lasting, good design is environmentally friendly. It was overall a manifesto for less but better. Now, I believe those principles to still be very relevant. Unfortunately, it seems that the design industry or the profession was never fully able to adopt such a philosophy as a whole and progress strictly towards a better path, especially with the contamination of capitalism and growth. Now, do you think we can form new generalized design principle for design and creativity in the 21st century? Well, I know Dieter and I've spent time with Dieter and one might think, mm, what the hell has Lovegrove's work got to do with the Rams work? But actually, Dieter found in my work a similar ethos. It's just that my output is maybe more emotional than what Dieter was uh, designing. And, but Dieter was mainly designing for one company where the, the identity of those products was always inverted. It was basically looking at Brown and, and what that identity meant to that company. And so, in a way, I like Dieter's values, but I don't think creative people like being beaten with a stick or being told, you know, this is what you should or should not do. So it applies very strictly, I think, to high numeric production products in the way that I could see why Johnny and Apple embraced a lot of Dieter's philosophy because it's incredibly relevant to the idea of, um, of a resourceful, mass-produced I mean, highly transformative product. It's not going to really relate to a puffer jacket. That's the fundamental difference between fashion regarded as style mm. 
rather than a useful everyday product design. I think what Dieter's philosophy and his comment, why it resonates is because, again, with the Apple philosophy, is it's the concept of dematerialization, less material, less but better, which I I like. It doesn't mean to say the result has to be uninspiring or or boring. I don't don't think that at all. And this needs to be qualified. No, and in fact, it says good design is aesthetic. So it was deeply aware of the fact but that I it remember should have at the an aesthetical bar value. At the hotel in Tokyo, when he had his walking stick there, it was super organic and he allowed me to hold it. And of course, it's relevant because that is an object which needs to fit the hand. So, you know, horses for courses, you, you select what you need for the particular condition. Now, you said not everybody likes to be poked by a stick or told what to do, but... Don't you think that by being unbiased and impartial, we have lost the courage to raise critical thinking? How can we be inclusive within the creative community and among all parties involved, from brands to designers and so on, while at the same time making sure that we allow constructive criticism? Well, that's a great question coming after the one about Dieter Rams, because Dieter is somebody that fundamentally believed in what he did. And I I admire that. I think that's great because he got his rules of engagement sorted out young and then he spent the rest of his life and he still is applying those because these are principles which are eternally relevant i think that's really interesting so nobody should go through life being soft in their opinions but in order to have an opinion you have to have a really deep rooted belief system in what you do and in an age where we're being absolutely submerged in information coming at us. I mean, I'm talking about a lot of visual information. It's, it's easy for maybe even young designers to think that unless they're part of this new wave of explosive form, that they are not relevant. So we have to, quite rightly, what you're saying, we need to get back to some core principles by which you can base your thinking on. When I, when I did my headphones for Kef, for example, I didn't design them really visually. I imagined what the interface would be between my hand and what is essentially my ear, and then use my fingertip to form that interface with a surface. So it's a form of surface erosion. So the design arrived from the idea of running an ongoing sequence of erosion, and then that's the shape that you get. It's not even designed, but it's got a very strong principle in it that I think could be applied to other things if you want to have some form of sculptural interface between the human being and a tactile object. Would you call that instinct, what you just described? It could be instinct, but it's just the way the body works. You know, If you look at early stone tools, you can pick one up and you think, God, that does not got to do anything. It's a sphere with a little niche out of it. And then the moment you pick it up, you think, oh my God, I, I, now I understand what it's going to do. So I, I don't know. I just think that there are things which are... Um, so immediate that you think "Mm, it's banal and then there are things which have a sort of layered discovery if you put my headphones on and you bring your hand up naturally your finger would naturally go in and and operate so that's me only putting form around something which exists (laughs) in some sense how do you reconciliate what you just described as this kind of like human scale sculptural element with the highly technological and innovative in my case there's two ways of designing and i've been saying this for years is i design with what i know 
which might be to some degree quite limited. And then I design with things I don't know. And I'm curious about the subconscious in me where I'm designing something I've never experienced. I know nothing about. And from start to finish, it's a learning curve. So I feel like my awareness has grown by undertaking that project. So my consciousness and awareness of being a human being and understanding my profession, if you like, is reinforced. It's a bit like Nick Knight with his historical understanding of his uh, of, of photography. I think that's really important. But, you know, I'm here also to discover and reveal aspects of design that have never been revealed before in order to have a position in my profession that is, um, is respected. And maybe it's not even if it takes us forward, because a lot of my thinking is from the past, the very deep past, very inspired by that. But it's just that, you know, it sounds morbid, but when I'm gone, you know, you'll be able to sit on a go chair and think, gosh, isn't that beautiful in the summer? Because it's hot. And yet when I touch the chair, it cools my hands. I mean, it's something I know. Mm-hmm. But that's a secondary benefit uh, from a thoughtful design. You're working and we're working together with AIs, text to image softwares and integrating GPT-4 and chat GPT on another, on another level for other projects. Do you fear that the deeper we drive down the path of technologically advanced, the more detached to the biological we will get? The aesthetics which are coming out of AI, chat GPT and so on are highly biological they're very organic, so you could, you could sort of rub your hands together and think, oh, finally the world's woken up to this new aesthetic that I've always loved, but I'm already tired of it, and I'm tired of it because it's not real, and it's extreme and excessive and hedonistic. But, you know, that's because we've got probably a four- or five-month-old baby here that we're trying to educate, and uh, in my case, I'm happy to let it run, but always founding the project on my own work so that I get this strange sort of recognition factor where I'll either like it or I won't. And it's very immediate. Uh, I want to show the world, I want to participate in this because as a designer, I've always invested in the tools of my time in order to produce products of the time in which I live. So if we can harness a way to capture some of that structural innovation into the reality of the production, we've got something interesting there for our future. I see it as intrinsically related to additive technologies where you try and print at a cellular level, a micro level, the material you need for what you need. And that can go from an object, a watch, if you like, or input device to a piece of architecture. We need an industrial revolution that is not based on fossil fuel, and we know that. So I'm promoting the use of artificial intelligence, but I'm also promoting the use of emotional intelligence because somebody has to guide this and guide it with the logic of, of, of going from the 20th to the 21st century, so at least you've got some run at this with a perspective. Uh, but also somebody who can be absolutely self-critical. It's funny because I'm somebody that is incapable of doing simple things. I mean, if you want me to screw a shelf on the wall, I'll fail. I, I can't. I'm, I'm much better at trying to work out complex systems, even if the result might be purified, if you like, into what I call organic essentialism. So I think there's, there's a hybrid. And in my second TED talk uh, at Oxford, which was TED Global. This was high risk for me. I mean, what I did was I presented something called Genesis, whereby 
I was proposing that you load up all the information known to man on a subject. And I tried to articulate that the best way I could by saying, let's start with a camera, a daguerreotype, say, from 1800 or whatever, and load it all up and look at ophthalmics, look at eye biology, look at lensing biology, telescopes, anything that's to do with the registration of information uh, in a photographic sense, and see what it comes up with. It'll go bang, 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 bang. It'll calculate, compute, and then it will give you a solution. I just thought that was incredible. I mean, that's what I was trying to put across. And I thought, well, I'll go and work with MIT. I'll I'll write an algorithm, uh, whatever we're going to call this. And we're going to start this new platform, which means that all these things which need to be made today in whatever number, what from what material, for who, how long it lasts, its birth-life-death cycle, all of it is calculated by artificial intelligence because we need something that's unemotional here that deals with the facts of how we coexist on the planet in a in a very neutral very homogeneous way with nature and that would do that and of course the criticism that came out is oh that's the end of design what about design design and my thought on that is that the individual the character of the individual like my language of design is is quite clear and representative the language of design by somebody like Konstantin Gritschich is quite different, although I do like it. So, you know, you would invite that designer to sprinkle a little bit of their pixie dust into the process in order to create biodiversity. And maybe even in the future, you'll be able to do that yourself in the bespoke way that you might put your fingerprint into the product that you end up owning. And if you did, by the way, if you had a bit of your genetic code in the headphones you're wearing, you're never going to want to lose those or break those or anything because they're actually an extension of you. It's a very interesting description of how a designer can move from a strictly operating artisan Mm -hmm. to more of a figure of a conductor working with different integrated systems and tweaking right at the end a few notes to make it his own. It talks a lot about personalization as well, what you just said, you know, it's how to work with with complexity of infrastructure, because that's why I find your work incredibly relevant and meaningful, is dealing with visual complexity, but most of the time referencing the the complexity of what the design practice is, you Mm -hmm. know, it's not just Mm -hmm. making one sofa one way or a set of headphones one way, we're dealing with manufacturing, uh, materials, Mm -hmm. properties, technology, and so on. Now, I'm going to quote something from a female author, Toni Kade Bambara, who once said, the role of the artist is to make the revolution irresistible. And you just talked about the third industrial revolution. Is that what you see happening right now with artists on social media, embracing AI and making this AI revolution irresistible through their artworks? Well, it could be, because in fact, if you look at what's happening with the work of certain people, the architects who become artists, like Refik Anadol, who when I first saw his work in Melbourne, I thought was extraordinary. That was before all the incredible adulation that's come on out. It's because this is information art, which means it's generated from data and numerics, and you can sense it. You can, And that creates complexity, and out of the complexity comes a form of beauty that is pretty damn hard to replicate in any other way. But it's obviously hand in hand 
with the technologies which allow us to see it at scale, the, the way that we can feel fully immersed in them with high, high definition. I mean, this is all very new. So I do, I see a, a strong link there between what's happening in art embracing new art forms that are not just splashing some paint on a canvas, which is more analog than analog, but the recognition of the beauty and value of things of a technological core or origin fascinate me, which I think will reflect really well then on objects, the 3D. What I'm talking about now is predominantly 2D, but there's a whole new era unfolding in the 3D. And, you know, I've just come off a long call with somebody I really respect in the in the automotive industry and talking about new technologies and so on. And the thing is there, we're all aware, there's a heightened awareness now of these new principles of image generation and the public will be more aware and maybe there's a higher expectation uh, to see that in reality. So I'm interested in the, the big picture of putting it all together. And the membrane has been breached, which means there is a high acceptance at the moment of technology in art so there will be a high a higher level of appreciation of algorithmic uh, computational data-driven technology in design and that data-driven thinking will actually maybe result in a higher level of efficiency especially for the use of resources and numbers and distribution and all of that it's not just the object it's it's all the fundamental cloud around it of how it exists that fascinates me. On the counterpart of this, mainstream design, and when I say mainstream design, I mean wallpaper magazine design, feels still very much retro and, and behind this. Why is that so? Why, why is mainstream design still the furniture design? And why is still so reductantly embracing the new generation? Well, I think primarily it's because the people who are running these platforms that show design... Um, there's some great people out there, but equally, I think they're limited in their viewpoint. And some of these platforms, remember, are sponsored by a number of these companies, which uh, produce quite ordinary, day-in, day-out, replicated goods, whatever they are. So I can see that. Unfortunately, a lot of these platforms, because they have to reveal more and more regularly at a greater speed uh, whatever's happening in the world there's such a high level of disposability and you don't get enough time really to to stare at it and digest it so it's this flick book design culture that we've created in the past you would have to look really deeply to find new information of what was going on in the world there's this massive acceleration and revelation of creativity and it's all jumbled up the problem then is you go to Milan, you go to the you go to the the Fiera, or even to some degree the centre of town for the Salone, and it's death by Wenge Wood. I mean, it, everything is brown and tasteful and whatever. And there are a couple of halls which got a bit more grit and a bit more attitude, uh, but it's always been like that. And you you see the huge plethora of Me Tooism. And first of all, I think, how on earth do they compete? Because there's so many people doing the same thing with the same graphics, the same, you know, same mood, the same one. And I'm in the business of differentiation and disruption and the new and bring it on because there are no rules, are there? You know, this idea of creating a soft life for people 
it's a kind of lazy attitude of buying into culture which is conservative that it's not going to rock the boat what would be a, a, an intelligent then advice to young creatives and, and and young designers that aspire to be also unique also disruptive and groundbreaking um also making a living from their profession yeah. you as you often mention something like it's very easy to be different and stupid but it takes a lot of work to be different and intelligent Well, the young designers got a number of options today. First of all, because of the internet and the, because you can put it out there, you have a whole new platform. And, and so that's a great one. That is absolutely wonderful. So what do you do? Do you schlep to Milan or wherever you schlep to and you try and talk a company into working with you to design a chair? Okay. These people are in the middle of nowhere. You've got to come from somewhere in the world. You've got to pay your own tickets. You go there. You, and if you're lucky enough to get a break, you can design a chair. You, you'd be lucky if you got paid anything, even. You might get a lunch. Well, first of all, that doesn't happen because unless you're a known <laughs> name, brands are not interested in working with you. So, so well, the social media link you just made, it's very uh, important. And I, I, you know, I often say that to friends of mine as well that operate within the creative and the art industry, social media is a great tool for designers and well, creatives today. Well, that's what I was about to say. You create yeah. your own personality, you can create your own name mm -hmm. and start showing your own DNA and identity. And therefore, the more you create your own audience, the more you have leverage to then approach a company. It's what I call mass individualism, which means that don't burn your resources on an old model There's a really great new potential now. And if it was me, first of all, you can stick with the chair. You, you, you visualize the chair and the skills are there now to visualize like it's real. You can rotate it on the screen. You can put it in a context. And maybe if that's based on a technology which is a makeable technology, you might get 100 people around the world. You might get 5,000 people around the world who say, oh my God, that's amazing. I want that chair. Well, go and get it made. Have a startup. Startup mentality. <laughs> Which brings me to um, a consequential thought that we share and then more and more colleagues of yours and, and, and mine, they're going towards that route, which is design for yourself rather than design for a company. Because we know brands and companies, they used to be, you know, the Medici's of, of the past, meaning they would discover talents first and then they would support them. But more and more, they're just there interested in leveraging from you, whether it's for marketing purpose or for profitability. And therefore they use you and then they dump you, especially towards the young. Well, the great thing about the startup is you can take a pretty good photograph of yourself. You can manipulate that. You can look great, as glamorous or not as you want. You can communicate through that, make up your bio, you can whatever you want to say about yourself and be pretty honest about it. It doesn't make any difference whatsoever. Whether you studied or not, that's not going to give you any advantage. You can visualize all those things that I'm talking about. So in a way, I, I think this off-grid independence is a wonderful opportunity. And that, that never existed in my day, you know, if it had. You know, I remember Ora Ito, who's made a hell of a name for himself. He started by visualizing Louis Vuitton handbags and this and that. He, he didn't have anything made. And look at him now. I mean, so it's a bit fake it until you make it, really. Is that, is that the ultimate way to be disruptive? Meaning if you're dealing with a company that has a heritage, you often have limits because the company wants to remain true to itself and therefore very hard to make a proper revolution. I, I think it depends on your life because, you know, if I was living in Milan and, you know, I was embedded in, in the Milanese culture, 
I would probably have a lot of work in that, in that sphere. I would because you just uh, you support companies, you help them grow in the way you're saying. You know, you not only help with your design and how you get that design made with production, you help promote. Uh, you use your name, your identity, and all your energy because it's in your vested interest too. Because it's a royalty based program. But if you do that for the wrong company, you're wasting your time. There are some still some amazing companies there in Italy that even now, you know, my position and age, I would still love to work with. You know, companies like Casino. If you look at their back catalogue of the innovation they were doing with Mario Bellini and Kita and so on, it's just really there was a great moment where there was investigation and flair. That shouldn't really go away. That can come back any time. So an alias is a really interesting company with Stufaco, what he was doing with Alberto Meda. There are these little pockets uh, of individual companies that have this sort of great Italian attitude to different, having things that are a bit different and, and very explorative, even if they would look a bit strange. Uh, and that needs to come back, I, I think, to create mm-hmm. this sort of what I call a mutation in design away from you know, what we expect. They can sell what, what's expected. But remember, what do you sell to the people who want something unexpected? Mm-hmm. Quite interesting, isn't it? Is design a manifesto or is design a service? Well, for me, it's a manifesto. It's a life's work. It's start to finish where I fill in the gaps, but I also keep pace with whatever is going on. And if I think a particular area of design is going nowhere, I walk away from it. That's why you haven't seen me in Milan for years, because I, I can't feel how I can engage with companies unless I have, I'm allowed a little bit more free will. Uh, to go in there more as an art director of myself and get a better payback so it's kind of worth it uh, otherwise it's not worth it it's just not worth it i realized that if you are an innovator maybe it's the wrong field to innovate so this is a remember that what i'm saying here will be loaded with opposites and contradictions and things which don't make sense because uh, that's the way life is so I, i i might sound contradictory but it's just the way it is so one has to look for other areas where your contribution can be made. And that could be, you know, being on a board and just helping people understand their mindset and where things are going. Because mm-hmm. it's not that easy these days. It's not make it, sell it, don't even look at it. it. It's something which you're deeply... What I do like, by the way, coming back to companies like Casino, is that none of that is disposable. A super leggera chair by uh, Joe Ponti is or Castiglione, I think, was it? It's incredible, even if it was Giopanti. <laughs> <laughs> you have a yeah. book on your shelf that says, I wanted to talk about the future, but I ended up thinking about the past. So in this conversation, we're trying to kind of go towards the, the, the future of, the, of design, but we're referencing a lot the past. Do you feel like in the past there was more bravery in design? Well, there was at one point, if you go post-war, where there was nothing to lose. It was, design was about re- rebuilding nations and economy so that the people would bring, there would be money. They would get money circulating back in society. And there was a good balance, you know. It wasn't as explosive and massive and global as it is today. So there were, there were less players, less people, less companies, less products. So therefore, they were exciting and they remain exciting. So... You know, I I don't see any sofas being designed today that are as good as what Mario Bellini did in the 70s, for example. So that's going back. Pause on that, because 
Yes, we totally agree that the furniture design is not that that exciting. Well, what excites you then today? Oh, I uh, just judged on the 3D Pioneers Challenge in Germany, okay? I'm a resident judge, it's year eight, and it's looking at all the 3D printing additive technologies in multiple areas, like biotech, architecture, design, transportation, and fashion. And uh, some of the submissions are mind-blowing. It's a a global uh, competition, and the people who sit on the panel, the jury panel too, are not mainly designers. They are people who come out of the technology companies, even government. It's a really interesting uh, jury panel. So those are the things that interest me. There was a new bicycle by Pinarelli. Oh, my God, it's incredible. And it was engineered by British designers in the north of England where they took the tessellations on the front fin of a whale and they put that onto the front of the frame as a 3D printed metal frame to improve the aerodynamics. It's the number one in the world. It's a world beater. Yeah, so that's really inspiring and goes back to biomimicry, basically. Well, what's the contribution? Because a design mind is an analytical mind. It's uh, it's a mind that, like I say, can stare into space and pull a lot of information together and coalesce that information into something uh, tangible. In that competition, one of the winners was a way of cooling um, electric motors. It was really beautifully done, and it could only be done with 3D printing because it was incredibly complex. But You imagine if you increase the efficiency of every electric motor on Earth, the energy saving on Earth. So I, it might look insignificant and like not a final product as such, but it, it has incredible implications. So I think design can shift also into this territory between uh, engineering, bioengineering, application of parametric modeling, structural diversity and uh, dematerialization. A lot of those factors are really incredible. And uh, you asked me, you know, what I'm interested in. I'm interested in, in that. I'm interested in the science and the physics mm-hmm. and the mm-hmm. application. It might not, if you look at my work online, you m- might not exactly see that. But that is me as Ross Lovegrove. That's what interests me. I'm, I'm, I'm I'm not particularly inspired by repetition or or things which uh, don't progress in some way. Yeah, I love all of that. And um, that's why I very much feel like mainstream design should start diversifying the portfolio of what they sell as aspirational design you know when that's why we you know me and you we, we buy the same magazines you know we, we buy the wired magazines we, we we buy the national geographic the the new scientist and so on and and it would be amazing if you had platforms like wallpaper starting to show more of that as well you know enough with the glass bottle and the glass vases and the soft cushions you know that's that's well, not maybe the it's not all visual though you, you see what i mean i mean after i after we take our daughter to school uh you know it's a nursery often there's a, a podcast or something on the radio and i'll sit in the car and listen to the radio because it'll talk about superconductivity and that's nothing visual that's you making your own visuals so i think there need there's, there's something missing here i think that's why podcast culture is so valuable because it's not contaminating uh your your other way of ingesting information and that's why we're here doing this podcast together now we're going to go run through a few of the questions that came through from your audience the first one is 
How do you decide when something is worth making? Well, that might not always be my decision, if you see what I mean. That might be the decision of a client. And there have been things that I've designed in the past, which for one reason or another, I ha- I've been dissatisfied. I just didn't think it optimized my input in a way uh, or, or benefited from the, the collaboration. So somebody else has made a decision that goes against the grain of the logic or not even the beauty, nothing to do with the beauty, just the logic of production. And it will not go to production. And then I thought to myself, Oh, yes, fantastic. That's success from failure, which means that instead of filling the world with all this stuff, I've managed to survive. I've managed to make a statement. I've shown the world something new and interesting, maybe inspired people. Yeah, survived, but it didn't survive for whatever reason. So often it's the, all the exciting, interesting stuff that's disruptive that will get challenged like that. So if you work for a big corporation, mind you, big corporations rarely have the name on the door of, a, of, of an individual. There's some name, anonymous name. So people come in and out of those corporations and they don't generally like to innovate because they might lose their job if, if it fails. Okay, then we have another question which um, I can also call answer to is how to best prepare yourself for the future of architecture and design? Uh, well, I've got serious thoughts on that. And throughout my career, I've made proposals, generate a house uh, really interesting where it, was, it would generate its own wind energy and so on. And the structure was derived from that. Uh, there was one prior to that, I, uh, Solar Seed, which was a solar generated house, uh, inflatable. I did that literally 25, 30 years ago. I got a model that was shown at the Pompidou. Uh, and then I've looked at netification, early 3D printing of structures, and so on. Uh, so for me, going against the grain of everybody else's thinking, I do not need to, to design a big skyscraper to show how important I am or whatever. I would prefer to look at space architecture as it's being developed in its lightness, dematerialization again, uh, material appropriation and bring that to earth because some of the is- issues that now we're going to face in space will come back to earth through global warming and, and so on. Yeah, now that's a few references of your own work and um, more strictly to how a person can prepare and how a creative can prepare himself or herself for the future of design and architecture. Well, I firstly, I would, firstly, I would say just self-taught yourself with as many different things you can. Uh, take a, a programming code, embrace AI, read loads of books, listen to podcasts, um, be as, as fluid, as more adaptive as you can be, because we live in an age where technology is running incredibly fast. Within four to five different uh, months, we're going to have a different scenario, you know, like uh, AI only came around summer 2022 and it's already disrupted the creative industry. So I would say, uh, I would say that just be fluid, be adaptive and keep learning, keep learning, keep questioning. Thank you for joining us on this episode of For Love and Design. We hope you enjoyed listening to our conversation. If you want to keep exploring the world of design, innovation, art, and creativity, be sure to subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review. We would love to hear your feedback and suggestions for future episodes too. And don't forget to follow us on social media to stay up to date with our latest news and announcements. Until next time.